Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the new Mainstream Podcast, where we explore the impact of multicultural consumers on marketing and media. I'm your host, Mario Carrasco, and co-founder of ThinkNow. Today, our guest is Hannibal Brooks, Senior Insight Associate at Olson Zaltman. Welcome, Hannibal. Thank you so much for having me, Mario. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, excited to talk to you today. Um, before we jump in, tell us a little bit about your journey in the insights industry. I know everybody's uh, one thing I love about our industry, where people come from is so varied. So, would love to learn a little bit about your background and um, how you came to work for Olson Zaltman. Of course. Uh, so, my journey actually starts um, in in undergrad and in, in college. I was really conflicted about what I wanted to do initially, and I thought I was going to do screenwriting for the longest time. But um, I also understood that I had this passion for understanding the world around me. So I wanted to get something scientific, but with a little bit of a cool spin. So I ended up settling on uh, food science. So for uh, four years there, I spent time, um, you know, raising chickens, studying probiotic substitutes for antibiotics, and um, cook. Spent a lot of time, you know, cooking in the lab, but what really caught my attention was how food is less of a product than an experience. So yeah, we, we were studying the just noticeable difference, you know, how much soy can introduce in meatloaf before it doesn't taste like meat. But if you look, if you've ever, you've been to a restaurant, right? If you see farm fresh and line, you know, farm fresh uh, food on a menu versus or line caught versus just something standard, that makes a huge difference coloration makes a huge difference. That kind of Ikea effect of that at home cooking versus uh, in a some other place creates a different sensation. So what I was really interested in, I realized was less about the creation uh, and the specifics and more about the consumer experience. Uh, so after that, I, I went to uh, my master's program was all about understanding consumer psychology. And that's what led me to my current role in metaphorical research, which is basically all about understanding people. Um, and that's sort of been my guiding light uh, throughout this, my my market research journey. That's incredible. I mean, I, I I might say this every episode, I don't know, but I think that's the most fascinating background today, <laughs> food science. I, I, I have a couple questions of that. So like, is, is it fair to say um, a lot of the things as humans that we respond favorably to when it comes to food, like color? Um, I, I don't want to say taste, but color. Uh, oh, taste is perfectly valid. That's or, like or taste, but is it is is it linked to kind of uh, evolution? In other words, you know, food now and and how we consume it and purchase it is so different than you know where where we came from, right? And so I wonder if you know is a lot of this food psychology linked to how we evolve to it like food. Yes. And, and I mean, I, great example here. Humans have one of the most exceptional uh, visions of almost any species aside from particular birds. Um, and you ever wonder why is that? It's because we have, uh, humans evolved this ability to distinguish between if fruit was ripe or not, because we're all about being able to track down and find that sugar, right? And uh, avoiding the bad stuff. Um, same thing when you're peeling or opening fruits, you often start at that sort of upper right hand because right handedness is far more common. 
when you're when you're opening things. So if you go to a restaurant menu and you sit down, the real estate people's eyes drawn to the most is that upper right corner, even though in a lot of the Western world, we read right to left. So yeah, the, the pace of evolution definitely um, outclasses our our ability to to change just culturally. So that permeates a lot of uh, the decision making we we engage in. That's fascinating. And, and what what's your thought about this whole, you know, ugly food concept? Like in, in grocery stores, right? We've been they're really taking advantage of our evolutionary psychology, right? I mean, it's all the fruits are perfect. It's abundant. It's 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 made to look like you know there's baskets of it. Um, and, and, and I think we've been trained to pick food with absolutely no blemishes that are, they're bright and clean. Um, and, but now there's this kind of counter movement of, of getting ugly food, food that the grocery stores throw away for sustainability. I don't know. How does, how does that play into food psychology? Well, are, when- we, are we going against, are we going against, um, our, our natural urges? I don't know. Yeah, so that actually is another fascinating thing, and it's great how it links to sort of the the research we go through uh, writ large. But there there was this study where they had people um, because I think what that ugly food movement is about is this kind of social badge value and also change because with the way we even perceive food, it's less about the taste than our mental perception of it. There was this study where they told they gave someone a sweater and they told them it had been worn by a serial killer. Most people refused to put it on even <laughs> for the study. But when they gave them a pin or showed them a pin that they told them it had been used like Albert Einstein, everyone wanted to touch it or use it because we have this ingrained element that this thing must transfer something good to me. So we still have primitive minds even in a very complex world. That's, that's so, that's interesting because we're, we're, we're essentially, you know, this ugly food concept, we're switching one psychological trick for another, right? <laughs> like, like perfection, um, abundance for this badge of I'm doing something good, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's super interesting. Um, and I guess that's a really good segue. You know, I, I wasn't familiar with Olson Zaltman to be to be perfectly honest until I started preparing for this um, podcast. But I'm really happy that we got connected because this is the first time I've heard about metaphoric research. So, you know, for our listeners that maybe are not aware of it, like, kind of tell us in a nutshell what metaphoric research is. Yeah. So, metaphoric research is all about understanding the the unconscious because the way it, metaphor is naturally the way we think. If I ask you, tell me about whales, or I mention the word, you know, uh, dragon to you, you're not going to tell me a whale is a cetacean that has an X, you know, centimeter hip diameter and it breeds and whatever. That's not what it's about. We we You would think of an image of it. And the way that we think is actually in images. So what metaphoric research is, uh, it's designed to solve that bound between our unconscious associations and first thought to our action, which in market research is kind of the say-do gap. You show someone a concept, you show them an ad, or you ask them what they think about something, and they tell you, I love it, and I'll do all these things with it, and then they don't do it, and you wonder why. It's not because they're lying to you, it's because they don't really know what they're thinking. And so what what metaphoric research does is 
we found over the course of time, we have people bring in images to represent their thoughts, their feelings about the product, a topic, an idea, whatever it is. And then we have a kind of self-guided, almost therapeutic conversation with them using their words, their language to understand those unconscious associations around an idea. And what we found is across cultures all around the world, individuals, these core set of deep metaphors occur um, again and again. And those, those deep metaphors, there's different surface manifestations of them, uh, really guide how we experience and think about products. So uh, I can give you a concrete example. Uh, if we think about uh, this classic example, if you describe crime in a community as a, uh, a beast or a virus, it hugely impacts how people will, uh, the solutions they'll prescribe. If it's a beast, you're going to want to apply a bunch of force and uh, aggressively control it. Where if it's, if it's a virus, you'll take a more uh, systemic approach for treating and curing it. Um, and, and a concrete example in the real world, uh, Persil, the laundry detergent, had this campaign. Um, in dirt in the laundry sector, the not detergent, it's all about the deep metaphor of force. So we'll eliminate 99.9% .9 of germs. We'll clean out this stain. We'll fight dirt. But they had a campaign that was about how dirt is the way your kids connect to the world. And so, yeah, our thing will help clean and remove it so that they can continue to explore, not just about fighting dirt. And so by activating a different deep metaphor than the majority of the category was, they were able to really distinguish themselves. So deep metaphors are really, they undergird the way we think about everything in the world, and they hugely uh, impact our behavior. Wow, that's fascinating. Just yeah, just blew my mind with that. Um so I'm I'm a I'm a literature major. I I studied literature in um undergrad and grad school. And there's a lot of similarity there, right? In terms of how we create stories is very similar across cultures, but there's also some distinct differences um across cultures, the type of stories we tell each other, um, and how we construct those stories. And even like a hero's journey, right, is something that seems universal, but the qualities that each culture imbues in a hero is different. Um, so that's that's really fascinating. So, you know, you you had mentioned that there are stories that humans kind of tell each other or tell ourselves that transcend culture. Can you can you tell us about that and how do they manifest differently at if at all across different cultures or cultural backgrounds or and, and give us an example if you can of some uh, ideas that translate across cultures yeah so we actually did a study for a client um, a number of years ago that was about their cars and what we found even though because one of the things is uh, in language people use surface metaphors all the time um, so you know we're break is a conversation breaking the ice that's a little bit of force or are you easing into it right um, what we found in that research is that even though we, they use a lot of different descriptions for it and brought in different images, everyone around the world kind of has a feeling that their car is alive. And so when they're buying <laughs> products or thinking about the treatment and care of it, they, they, they may have a different relationship with this living creature, but their campaign centered around the health of your car and treating it kindly or taking care of it is, uh, is something that goes across cultures. So that's, that's one it's, example that kind of sort of comes to mind. And, and so, I, I want I want to kind of probe on that. So this uh, this concept of 
a car being alive or us treating it like it's alive, it, it sounds so intuitive once you say it, right? It's like, oh yeah, that that is how I treat my car or my vehicle. Um, how did you come to that finding? Was that was that you all kind of? Is that literature that's out there, like in ah, scholarly so- research, or is that is that like an aha moment you had with a client? Like, how did you come to that realization? Well, I think one of the best ways to get there is let let me take you back to the beginning. So the way that this this ZMET, uh, what we call the Zaltman metaphorical elicitation technique, it was developed when our, our founder Jerry Zaltman was a he's a prof- as was, was a professor at the Harvard um, uh, Mind of the Market Labs who kind of created that there. Um, went on a sabbatical to Nepal and to learn about the lives of the locals, he gave out a bunch of uh, Polaroid cameras, right? To have them document their daily lives. It's kind of an ethnographic study. And what he found when he got all the pictures back is that everyone took pictures from like the ankle up and they never showed their feet in the pictures. And you realize it's because showing whether you have shoes or not is like a sign of poverty or shame. So it kind of led to this breakthrough realization how people's images they use to represent themselves and things around that shapes their, you know, reality. Um, And so for for that car example, it's when people bring in pictures, you'd be stunned how how many similarities there are um, in the the trends that kind of appear. And of course, the conversation, what we do is explore the the metaphors, the literal language metaphors they're using in their discussion um, to unpack and find how those deep metaphors can be activated or changed by a client. I mean, I'm just spitballing an example here. Let's say you're interviewing someone or giving them a survey about sofas, right? You could ask, <clears throat> they might on the surface say things like, I, I chose it because it was this price or I like a black leather sofa, um, you know, but you're not going to find out why they pick a sofa, not a chair. Who is it for? You know, you could ask household, but that wouldn't necessarily bring it to mind. Whereas if I research Maybe someone, when they were talking about their sofa, they might bring in a picture of a family running in a field because their sofa reminds them of their childhood sofa and that kind of comfort. Or maybe it's like this black leather sofa in a glass room and it's like a, you know, an, I don't know, a, a fancy car because it's about a, a mature expression of themselves or it's a place to immerse themselves with their TV. So a lot of times those images, they're just the start to unpack the metaphors that tell you the truth of what people are thinking. That's incredible. And, I, and um, not to belabor this automotive thing, but I find it fascinating. So, and, and I, I have a personal interest in cars and, and how uh, different cultures relate to their cars. So I love that the research that you've done has identified that we all treat our cars like a living thing. And I wonder if the difference comes in on the the relationship. So while the metaphor is the same, and I'll give you an example uh, here in Los Angeles, uh, and I think I think it's there. I think there's it's it's in other places, but really, uh, you know, lowrider culture. I don't know if you're familiar with lowrider culture. Oh, yeah. um, okay, but you know, Latinos very prideful about their cars. Lowrider culture is kind of the ultimate manifestation of that. I mean, um, you know, in terms of the, you know, the paint job, um, you know, modifying it. Uh, and that's, that's something that we see, even if you're not necessarily, you know, that into it it, it, to reach lowrider status that Latinos in general, um, just to tend, tend to, 
put more focus on the visual aspect of their vehicle. And that's also now, uh, that's transcended into motorcycles as well, right? Harley Davidson, for example, found that uh, one of the fastest adopters of their motorcycles are Latinos. A lot of what's driving that is a similar culture of, you know, dressing up the motorcycle and um, customizing it really to reflect who they are. Um, how, how does that play into this idea, right? Where there's this kind of universal metaphor, but that relationship's different. I mean, wh where does metaphoric research fit into that? Or is that kind of an, a little bit uh, higher, or not higher level, but just a different level of insight? Oh, no, that's that's one of the, the perfect uh, expressions of it. So um, in addition to this, this element of uh, what the core deep metaphor is, as I mentioned, it's the surface metaphors come to life in different ways. And we actually at our company developed this this uh, AI tool recently called Simile, where participants go through and they select, you know, what's an image that represents your thoughts and feelings about a particular subject. And what we found is there's a bunch of subclassifications of those deep metaphors. Um, we, I mean, if we want to talk about the, the low rider culture in particular, maybe all of these things are about maybe the motorcycle often it's can be this aspect of either control or sometimes it's about this open container because it's about freedom exploring expressing yourself there's definitely different cultural tinges to what does free self-expression look like mm. right yeah and, yeah and like for I'll, I'll dive into one other kind of study we did recently on covid Obviously, it's something where everyone is kind of um, isolated and separate. And what we did is look at it generationally. And we found that everyone had images of themselves separate from others, right? That's to be expected. But kind of that life stage of baby boomers versus millennials versus Gen Z, totally different manifestations of it. So uh, baby boomers kind of see it as hunkering down. You got images of hunkering down during a storm and kind of gathering with their loved ones and feeling like this time is kind of going to pass. Millennials brought these images of people working on kind of arts and crafts. So they're nervous, but it's a little bit of self-discovery and exploration. And Gen Z just feels like they brought images of people falling apart and things shattering, just like the world is being destroyed and kind of isolated. So all about being isolated, but three totally different uh, manifestations. Wow. I want to talk, I want to unpack that a bit with you. That's, <laughs> there's a lot there. So and this is these are just my first reactions to it. Um, when you talk about baby boomers and hunkering down, I mean, that gives me war metaphors. You know, right. like that, and and I wonder if that's linked to their experience of, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, baby boomers, World War World War Two. Um, so yeah. that you know, I wonder. I wonder if that's. Yeah, that's how play there. Yeah, so what we found for baby boomers is there's there was a for them it's it's interesting they this feeling of sort of hunkering down for them it was almost this journey they were like this is a pause in the journey but I've been through a lot this is kind of a storm that's going to pass so well they they had a, a metaphor about journey that was this is like a pause in a journey that's uh, going to continue I know with certainty it's going to pass. Um, with millennials, their experience, it's, you know, they've had this, the disruption of kind of the economic fallout of, uh, of 08 and, and, you know, a number of other uh, cultural kind of time bound factors. So their sense was, 
I don't know if this is going to end. It's like an unknown journey ahead of them. Um, but I'm taking this time to kind of restore myself. And then Gen Z, it was everything shattered. There is no path ahead. The world itself is kind of chaotic because they haven't even had the chance to sort of build a normal, you know, path. That entire path has been disrupted. So it's kind of the the generational experience to shape that. Yeah, the, the, the Gen Z thing is really interesting to me because um and now i'm showing my age but like i i just thought that gen z would be the best suited for this that you know like like i read statistics about you know playing outside like all-time low like you know so much of their social interaction was online versus millennials i mean i'm barely a millennial i'm like literally barely a millennial um so a lot of my half of my life now I've lived without the internet half I've lived with the internet. So, you know, I, I, I value in-person relationships more than someone who, you know, all their relationships have been formed online or with the internet or a mobile phone. So I wonder what it is about Gen Z that feels like they're breaking apart when from my perspective, their day to day is probably kind of pretty much the same, right? Like, I don't know. Yeah, so that's one of the interesting. So that that research, there were kind of three big trends that came out for Gen Z. There's this feeling of like being uh, disconnected and distracted. They're calm outside, chaos within, and then this sense of the world shattering. So what we found is, yeah, Gen Z spends a bunch of time on their phones and connecting virtually, but those are more augmentations to their daily way of connecting with people. What they so they really miss spending that time with their colleagues in person. Online is almost more of a continuation, and and uh, you could think of it like an anemone in in uh, it's in a clownfish, right? There, there's like a mutual sort of interaction, and when one thing is gone, that social media sphere feels a little bit hollow without that. So they're putting on a brave face, but there's no certainty that things will return to normal. So it, it's it's one of those things. We, yeah, the Gen Z can seem like they're drifting more and more virtual, but in truth, um, kind of like we talked about with the food you need that in-person connection. Evolution is much slower than uh, our society and our technology is advancing. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. And that, that, that's, um, I appreciate those insights because it's, it's made me change my view of Gen Z a little bit. Right. Cause I've been like, Oh, they're fine. They're always on the internet. They're always on their phone. Um, Cause I don't really see them out much or maybe I do. And I just don't realize they're Gen Z. Um, but you know, we've talked about generational research, um, and the differences there. Are there any metaphoric research projects that you looked at different cultures in the U S like Hispanic versus African-American versus Asian? Like, are there any examples that you can share about types of metaphors that were similar or different among these cultures that, that you've experienced? Yeah, I definitely can. Um, so if we're thinking about within the U.S., some some pretty interesting trends start to uh, to fall out with respect to those uh, three groups. Um, we recently did this large sort of uh, cross-sectional study for a client. And what we found is there's almost a difference in kind of the rootedness 
and exploration uh, within those groups. So with for African-Americans, and I, I heard you had a, a great story in one of your uh, your other uh, episodes of the show, um, they're rooted in, you know, Black cultures, like a powerful subculture within America. And it's very focused on exploring our, our roots and connecting to those, but it's expanding in terms of bringing in different parts of the Black diaspora, different gender style expressions and other things, but it's very much about maintaining the spirit of the community and slowly working to expand it. Um, with Hispanics, we found there was a nut, I can actually think of a different study now, but we found this really interesting research and it's kind of a great metaphor around uh, the cowboy as an example, because cowboys <laughs> are, they're rooted in Hispanic culture and tradition. That's where all their their basic, you know, ide- the, the concepts of it are from, yet it's also that very American individualistic explorer in a, on a kind of frontier in a new world. So what we found is that there's almost this cowboy um, idea of I'm connected to my roots, yet I'm also exploring in part of this new culture. So I'm kind of torn between these two things. Um, and then for I research on uh, Caucasians, there was this, I, I know I, my culture is kind of the mainstream. So I'm defining myself by um, becoming an expert in a, a craft in, in, in sort of uh, being by being uh, having a sense of authenticity to myself, I explore culture and I kind of find what represents me. So it's very individualistic versus I'm partially representing my culture, partially exploring versus I'm purely focused on my culture and kind of expanding it. So three very different perspectives all around a similar uh, product. And this was kind of incidental to the research itself. And, and did you, did you um, were Asian Americans part of this research by any chance? I'm, I'm curious what kind of metaphors were there. Yes, they were. Um, and what we found there was, it's it's funny because I'm, I'm not, it's not like all these things were just on a, a scale relative to each other, but um, a position that was kind of a hybrid between some of those other groups that there are expectations um, for, for me, placed on me by my culture, yet I want to represent those in new and interesting ways. And there's actually been almost a shift back to you know, I'm in this new place, but I'm working to rediscover my connections in the, the, the homeland kind of. This is, this is fascinating. This is, this is cool stuff. And, and, you know, um, I I think what jumps out to me with African-Americans, it's, it's interesting. I don't think we talk about collectivism that much among the African-American community, right? And that's, that's what seems to rise from what you're telling me. Is that, is that a correct assumption? It is fair to say, and I think we can look at history and see um, uh, a history of uh, intentional exclusion and isolation and separation. A lot of these forces have forced, I mean, you've, you've probably seen research, a lot of different communities, the African-American term has kind of fallen somewhat in favor of Black or at least Black. Yeah rising is the defining thing because there's many, many different ideas under one shared banner. So they've, they've sort of uh, across history been forced to think and act and kind of, I'm work, I'm thinking for my family, I'm thinking in terms of this collective. And that's led to a hugely uh, diverse array of expressions around this central uniting principle. So it's, it's very interesting because like Black American culture is, is born of a culture almost entirely created in the uh, in the United States, 
uh, as shaped from a lot of different influences more subtly. So it's a very novel kind of thing. It's less pulling from a different culture than a, a lot of reinvention. Yeah, and, and what I love about the research and what you're telling me is that every time you're explaining these studies and your findings, I'm connecting it to the research that we've done, right? That's much more traditional, um, quantitative, um, and yet it's it's verifying a lot of these findings that you have, right? In terms of black culture identification, you know, we did a whole study on how, you know, how black people in the U.S. identify, how Latinos in the U.S. identify, and 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 um, all the metaphors that you're hitting on are spot on. Um, and so, you know, what what is that? What is that interplay for for your company or for the research that you do? Are are you kind of just sticking to the metaphoric research, um, or do you follow that up with quantitative? I mean, how 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 do companies engage you from that perspective? Yeah. So what we do um, is really help companies understand their core issue. If it's we're selling a lot, but we need to know who our consumers are. A lot of what our work is based on is finding those core believers in the company. They're, they're super fans or, you know, they're casual consumers and seeing what do they see in this company? What is that deep metaphor and how can it be expanded to others? So really it's finding the solution to troubling situation or helping expand in a, a great um, situation. And we do, we, we do have some quantitative tools. We have the, uh, we use implicit association testing because obviously we're all focused on, uh, understanding that unconscious, right? We're, we're kind of like the, the mission impossible team for, for companies that are looking to find the, the truths of their brand and, uh, revive the truths of their brand and the truths of their consumers really. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and, you know, I have to, um, I have to go back to this this cowboy metaphor you mentioned because it's so spot on for me. It's kind of crazy, you know. That's that's what I think about. You know, one of the people um, for me that links me back to my my culture. I'm I'm Mexican American. Is my grandfather, um, and you know, my my grandfather has a pretty incredible story coming from uh, a farm in, in Mexico to you know to here and building a life and but he was a cowboy. Um, and, and, and that's the archetype for me. Right. And, and it's, it's, it's kind of crazy how you hit that spot on. <laughs> yeah. There's, I, I actually looking at some of your, your past, um, work, I, I really like that idea you brought in of that, uh, the bi-dimensional identity measure, because mm-hmm. I think that that links well with the, the kind of idea we're talking about here. Deep, as I mentioned, you know, deep metaphors can be universal across cultures um, yet you need to know what culture is someone representing or acting with unconsciously um, in their purchasing decisions and their, their thoughts about a brand, whatever it is. This, this is really um, an unguarded way to explore that. So first you find out who the, the culture you're buying from and how people identify. And then second, what does it mean to be in that culture? What does it mean to be a consumer with that uh, mindset? And so even though our work is more focused on psychographically segmenting people, um, culture is one of the, the important formation pieces of our, uh, of our psyche. Yeah, but what I love about your work, though, is that it points to where we should all be going as researchers. I think 
I mean, thankfully, you know, some of the good to come out of 2020 is that we're starting to think about consumers much differently. And, you know, oftentimes as researchers, we want to neatly segment people into buckets. I'm thinking about, you know, when you brought up the bi-dimensional identity measure, you know, this concept of acculturation that you literally go from unacculturated and we're talking uh, to acculturated. Um, and that assumes that, you know, you come to the U.S., whatever your background is, and you're going to, you know, you march along this nice study line and become American. <laughs> and mm. and that's never been the case, you know, for people of different cultures, um, whether that's black, which are, very, you know, you know, it could be argued the most American to Asian who are recently immigrated, th- you know, that, that, that flag point, there is no end point. There is no such thing as acculturation. It's a journey like what you, like, like what you're mentioning, right? Um, there is a part of me that, uh, wants to be, you know, American or striving to American, but there's also a part of me that cares about my culture and my family and, and, keeping that and, and passing that down to my kids or whatever it may be. Um, so I think it's all, it's always that play between two cultures that understanding that really gets at what motivates consumers and how they make decisions. I think that was put, uh, you put that perfectly. Yeah. And, and I, I love how metaphors play into that, right? Cause it gives you such a great idea into, into psyche. Um, yeah, this is this is a uh, fantastic. Um, <sighs> yeah, I'm happy to share. Like a, another sort of example came to mind for me. Um, we were doing this study on uh, on oncologists in, and I'll, I can do a couple examples actually. But in France, um, oncologists when they were asked to bring in um, images sort of representing their treatment of cancer, they brought in pictures of you know, flowers blooming and of sort of natural, different natural processes playing out um, because their focus was all about it being holistic and kind of natural and full body. Whereas in the U.S., it was a lot of people against an obstacle. It was isolating this thing and destroying it. So you see how that can have massive differences in the types of treatment and action that's kind of prescribed, right? Or with the- Did you, and so I'm super curious, did did you look at, or do you know what the efficacy rate is of the different treatments? I guess I just want to know what, what approach is better. Well, there's it. I think one of the things we found is our, our work in that particular case um, was figuring out the, the psychology of these doctors for a specific course of treatment. And it's, it's hard to say what the, what the approach is, because obviously it's kind of an, an individual case, but um, what we were able to do is whoever the ultimate purveyor is, whether it's a, a more holistic treatment or a more focused one, if they know how doctors of a certain type think, if you have, if you're someone marketing a more aggressive form of treatment, how can you make that connect uh, with someone who's going for something more holistic or vice versa, right? So our work is more uh, unpacking versus uh, efficacy, but our clients always appreciate that they can retool either reformulate or uh, recalibrate what it is they're offering. And another example that I'm kind of thinking of is, you know, in this age of COVID, um, if you look at like mask compliance and wearing rates um, in Asia, mask wearing the deep metaphor there is because it's been a trend for, you know, decades longer. 
it's all about connection because by having on a mask, it's a sign of you caring about your community. Whereas in the US, the mask is kind of seen as a container that's restraining your freedom or restraining you. And so you see how that's led to drastically different outcomes. And so with that, how do we, does that example give us any kind of potential solution to help Americans switch from this individualistic perception of, you know, I'm, I'm, it, 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 it's hurting my freedom to I'm helping a fellow American. I mean, are there any insights for us to learn that the government local agencies can take and kind of, I mean, can you change the you way people think, you know, metaphorically? One of the, the toughest things kind of on that evolution point I mentioned earlier too, big cultural changes can definitely change the way people think. But at a core level, people's thinking, this, that system one style of thinking, it's less vulnerable to change. But what we can do is change the presentation of what we offer to effectively ride on the way they're, they're acting. So um, one example we, we actually put into play, we work with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Right. And we were talking about how to improve the health of communities, whether that's access to health care or um, improving wages and a whole host of other social actions that can be taken. But what we found is all the metaphors they were using to communicate and it was working well ish was about balance. Right. Everyone, you know, it's keeping things equal, helping everyone sort of succeed, that kind of thing. And it wasn't really resonating because more that worked for progressive minded people, but more conservative minded people thought about it more as equal means someone else is brought down in order to raise someone else up. So there was less engagement with those initiatives. So what we found instead is um, a little bit of that, that cowboy idea. In a sense, this metaphor of journey worked far better. So when we switched to messaging about education and removing barriers, healthcare and helping someone get ahead that was something that worked with both groups because they were about, it's, if it was less about balance and more about journey, everyone could buy into a metaphor of journey. So in that same case, for something like COVID, we need to find a way to, to tap into maybe a different metaphor, but that, that can align with uh, a broader spectrum of the, the population. And it, it's meeting people where they're at, ultimately. That's right. This is great. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Hannibal. Of course. Very glad to be part of it. And and how, um, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way? Do you have a Twitter, LinkedIn? Feel free to share any way if, if people want to reach out to you. Of course. Um, I'm at Hannibal Brooks on uh, LinkedIn. And uh, Olson Zaltman, I actually manage our uh, our Twitter account. So if you want to give us a follow there, uh, happy to, to connect there as well. And we recently redid our website too. So if this kind of stuff is uh, intriguing to anyone listening um, you can check out our, our case studies and other sort of just to see some of the cool uh, projects we've uh, we've worked on. And, you know, it's it's inter it has entertainment value. And I can say that as someone who works there. Great. I, I can imagine I'm definitely going to be visiting the site and I'll follow you all on Twitter. Thanks again, Hannibal, for joining. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks to everyone listening in to get more multicultural insights. Check us out at thinknow.com and follow us on social media. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. 
Final thank you to our producer, Lucas Martinez, who created our intro music and makes our podcast sound great. T-mail him. Reach out to martinez.lucas.a at gmail.com. <laughs>